three nights in a tile prison. This is That Guy Walking Podcast. It was on Wednesday night. Things were looking good to be able to go to bed early. We had finished our chores. Things were all tied up neatly for the night. My wife, slowly walking back to our room, stopped abruptly, perking up her nose, started to tingle. She looked at me and she simply said, something is not right. Now, in order to understand this moment truly, you have to, we have to back up a month or so when we moved into our new house and we were walked in, we had boxes in, we were about to move, start to move furniture into rooms and my wife walked into one of the bedrooms and said, no, this carpet must go. It was confusing to me at the time because, well, the carpet looked great. I didn't smell anything, I didn't think anything of it, but there was something wrong. So she, she walked into the room, she stood there, eyes closed, nose ablaze with fury, pointed to the middle of the wall and said, it's right there. And over in the corner by the closet, it's right there. In sheer disbelief and awe, I completely didn't believe what she was saying. And so, sensing that ultimately we were going to be getting this carpet removed, I went over to the wall and I gently pulled it up and flipped it over. And lo and behold, a dark brown stain. Thinking that it was just pure luck, I went over to the other corner by the closet door only to do the same thing and only to find that, in fact, my wife has a super nose. Fast forward back to Wednesday night when she's looking at me and saying something is not right. She leans into the girl's room, doesn't even open the door, shakes her head, leans over to the boy's room, looks at me and says, he puked. What? I thought, there's no way. That boy was fine today. He laid down, not a problem. We walk in and it is a scene out of The Exorcist. There's throw up all over his mattress. The rug that is below his crib is dripping with throw up. It is horrifying. So begins our story of being in prison, being locked in the tile prison for three days. It turns out that our two and a half year old seemed to have some sort of a stomach bug and would not be able to keep anything down. His entire dinner and water bottle that he had drank over the span of the afternoon and evening was all in fact onto his sheets, covers, and thank the Lord waterproof uh, mattress covering, as well as dripping down onto his rug. So. As my wife was starting to deal with that, I moved, I got the pack and play out for him to sleep in. Simple, easy to, to do. Dropped him in there, gave him a sip of water. That was a mistake. Put him in, turn around, walk out to grab something, hear a daddy, come back in, pack and play. Ruined. Now we pull him out, take him out again, put him through the shower. And now it's time, we've made the decision. Our brand new carpet will not suffer from this stomach, stomach bug. So we bring in blankets and, and beach towels, and we set up a pallet, and he now has been quarantined to the master bathroom. 
for the first night, I took on the role of prison guard. So as he laid in the bathroom, I slept in the closet just next to the bathroom with a direct line of sight of him, quick few steps, and we're right into the, to the toilet if he needed it, which he did. Throughout that night, periodically every hour, hour and a half, he would get up and need to go and visit the porcelain gods and, and bow to them. The thing was, though, over the span of the night, he got really good at it, actually. He was able to get up, open the door by himself. By the time he'd open the door, I'd be there, and then he'd lean over and just take care of his business. Then he'd look up at me and say, and Daddy, I'd throw up, and then come and give me a hug and go crawl back into bed. The funny thing was that as he was doing it, he would always ask, can I have more water? Can I have more water? I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And it took me about four, four rounds of this to realize, ah, as much as I want to give him water for his little body, every time I do, he throws up. So we stopped the water, made it through the night, and ended up having about a good four and a half, five hours of sleep that night before we moved on to the early morning of the next day. The next day was kind of a blur because one, I was lacking in sleep, but then besides that, just all of the different chaotic things happening. It was the first day of school for my daughter. It was a day of work that I needed to be at. It was a, our middle daughter was craving attention and now my son was throwing up all night. So it ended up being quite an event, but staying late into work with the help of a teledoc, simple two minute entry onto a website, five minute call later we have infamous Zofran, which is there to stop the nausea. We got the Zofran, I was able to go to work, my daughter was able to go to school, the other daughter was able to stay home with my wife, and the boy was again quarantined to the master bathroom. The day was filled with Paw Patrol, water bottles, and saltine crackers. A dream for some boys, you'd think, but for him, who only wants to be outside, it was a prison. He, was, he would try to get up and he would just get down. He was already his little body so weak and so nauseated still. But it seemed though by the end of the day when I got home that he was feeling better. Only to walk out and be cleaning up dinner to hear, Taylor, splat. He did it again. That second night it was not a night where I slept in the closet, but rather I slept in our bed and we left the door open and barricaded so if he needed us, but thankfully with the Zofran, he was able to sleep through the night and wake up the next morning, still weak, still rough, but feeling better. And the days went on like this until on Friday, he woke up hungry, feeling better and ready to conquer the world again with saltine crackers, some cereal, and lots of Gatorade. Now, I'm not going to ask how often it is that you are caught in the bathroom throwing up on the floor because for some that might be more often than others. For some it might be just like my experience, it was your child that was keeping you away. But how often do you believe that your day is going one way and then in a split second, in a moment of a superpowered nose or a bad dish of, from your favorite restaurant, your entire plans have changed. You wanted to have this goal to complete these things, 
the goal of celebrating the first day, the goal of being able to go and complete the projects ahead of you and, and everything changes. And in the moment at 3.15 in the morning, hearing that little voice say, Daddy, I throw up and telling him to get to the toilet and watching him heave over that, perspective changes, the importance change. And I wonder what it is about that, that why those extremes have to happen to get that perspective uh, change to, to really occur. I try not to, to refer to myself as a workaholic. I don't believe that I'm a workaholic. My mind is always connecting back to work, but my work is also, it kind of spreads into a lot of areas. And so things that I'm interested, things that I'm trying to do, things like this podcast are, you could argue, are considered both work and personal. And so it's really interesting to really try and be focused on my family. And in those extreme moments, it's really easy to focus on the family. But in those other times, it's, it's really not. And it's funny how that struggle is, but it's, it's so much more rewarding for me personally to be able to set the work ideas aside for a minute, to set the dream ideas aside for a minute, and to be able to sit and read with my kids or play ball or go on a walk with, while they ride their bikes and hear those awesome words of, Daddy, watch me. And I try not to take those for granted. But when I think about the, the, the professional side of me, the leadership side of me, the, the side that does dream, the side that does want to make the world that these three little ones are going to be growing up into a better place. I think about how much time is not spent on those little things. That the little things are not even considered. That they have to be a big dramatic event like throwing up in the bathroom or the equivalent of that for any attention to happen. And yet it's the little things that drive us moving forward. It's the little things that cause us to make a change or to think about what could be better about this life. And it's really interesting to think about how those little changes, those subtle, might actually be so extremely large that we've lost that to go back almost seems idiotic and yet it would be a fix that could change the way that th we are doing. Let me share an example. <clears throat> when we moved into Hong Kong, we were required, <coughs> thankfully required, in my opinion, to live on the top level, the seventh floor of the school, in an, a school apartment. Walking down that hallway, seeing the tile walls and the tile floor, the heavy dark brown wood doors with the numbers on them and the key card scanners on the side, it had, was a flashback to me to college and to the dorm life. The sounds of the door slamming and echoing down the halls, the sounds of people talking as they walk down the halls or their footsteps wondering who it is or running up to look in your keyhole to see who's outside or to see who's outside waiting for you to, or seeing who's talking. It just became a place of nostalgia and, and experience, something that we had, I had not done in a long time. The crazy part is, as odd as it was to live in a dorm setting as an adult as a married adult as strange as it was to share a washing machine laundry room area it was completely the best thing that could have happened to us as we moved over there 
because it was instant community. Everyone that was on that hallway was going through the exact same thing that I was, just like when I was a freshman in, high, in college. Everyone in that dorm room was going through the exact same move that I was, no matter where you were from. And so you were able to bond together, no matter your beliefs or differences, and find commonality in simply the newness of life. Now this is very interesting because some of these friends that lived across the hall, down the hall, are still our best friends. Here we are eight years later from that experience. And I find it really, really interesting that that one small act, that one small requirement that probably saves the school a chunk of money each year, actually does so much more for their culture than it could ever be done for anything else. I started this podcast talking about my son puking and being caught in the bathroom, realizing that this is an, a, an, an, was an opportunity for me to camp out with my son, to spend a little time with him in his weakest moments and help him and to build him up. And it's leading me to think about the culture of what change, changes have come, whereas those little things that should be always there, like spending time with my son when he's not sick, which I try to do every day, which I do do every day, excuse me, I don't try to do it, I make a point to spend time with my son and my daughters every day individually because they need that, I need that small time. But thinking about this on a grander scale, so the illustration of us living in this dorm mentality or this dorm life for a year uh, really built community. It built community within the school, it built community within us as neighbors, and it built a commonality. Now what's interesting is, is that this setting was actually something that was used in history. As I was reading, I've been reading slash listening to on Audible uh, the book Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek, and I brought up some quotes of his before in the podcast. He was breaking down how historically congressmen and congresswomen, when elected back before the 1990s, would actually move their families to D.C. That they would be elected, but they would leave their homes to come and do the work required in D.C. Now, the, the awesome part about this is not the fact that they are leaving their homes to go and do this and that, how that is an adventure, because it is. I highly encourage anyone listening, if you have the chance to move somewhere unknown, for an adventure, you should go for it. But the way Sinek describes it in his book is that what happened is that unique and organic culture came to, came to be in D.C. That the conversations and the debates that were happening on the Senate and the Congress floor were happening, but then once they were done, men and women from opposite sides of the party would leave to go have dinner, to go pick up their kids, to go to the band concert. Republicans and Democrats, they were coming together just as life came. They were able to leave the job and to see the small things in life and connect on the small things, not worrying about the professional things. And yet that's changed now as history has taken us through it, that typically now congressmen and women will actually live in their home district and then fly to D.C for their meetings and debates. And so it has removed that personal connection between those that are around them, that the life that is lived as a congressperson 
is no longer something that is connected by life, but just by policy and by experience. That was an eye-opening historical lesson for me because I've experienced that. I've experienced the what it means to actually be dropped into a community and live with strangers in a community multiple times, but as an adult especially. College is college is college. That's an experience all of its own. But as an adult, to be dropped into that scenario, to be living in the same hallway, to be experiencing the same things from different perspective, perspective drives this unique appreciation for the small things. Was our kitchen too small? Yes. Was our bed made of mostly wood and little mattress? Yes, absolutely. But the friendships and the community that we built in that moment was something that is irreplaceable. The fact is, is that we were able to laugh with those people, cry with those people, that our, we had children at the same time with those people. Our kids are growing up. We're watching them on social media, even though we're separated from by thousands of miles across the world. Those little ones that all grew up together are still connected. And I hope that one day we can be reunited all together. But I guess the thing I'm thinking about is that small, small piece of time that I had with my son that night when he was not feeling good brought an appreciation of what it means to be in those small moments and the importance of those small moments. And the fact is is that those small moments are getting erased and ignored because they're not the big moments. They're not the trending moments. They're not the moments where 15 million viewers are, are watching you. They're the moments where it might just be one person that you smile at or open a door to or sit down and say, hi, how's it going? I'll admit, I am a horrible conversationalist. That is one of the things that I am constantly having to work on, rehearse, bring up. I have questions that I can ask, but when the conversation goes dry, it's almost like I freeze up on the free throw line and I shoot an air ball. It just does not work. And so we all have those moments, but the small moments are so, so important. And I'm wondering what could happen if we took an investment back into those small moments and tried to really build up what life is supposed to be like and where it's supposed to go. I work in technology and education. That's my job. Podcasting, innovation, computers in the classroom, be able to, the ability to use mobile devices, that's what I do. But more so, I am in, my goal is to create a, a new world of learning so that my kids will not experience something much more than I ever experienced as a, as a learner. Where they can experience an element of discovery in their learning and not an element of consumerism. An element of curiosity rather than an element of cramming and throwing up on a test, all puns intended. The interesting part is as school is starting for my district that I'm working for, I have one school who has said, we are turning off the cell phones, they're going away into the backpacks, and they're not coming off until they leave school grounds. This is completely counter-cultural to what today's culture is stating about cell phones. Going to any American high school, any American middle school, and in even some cases, any upper elementary, and you will see that there will be kids with their cell phones out at their lockers, in the bathrooms, in the hallways, under their desks, some form or fashion. Kids with their AirPods in and their wireless headphones in their ears as they walk to their own personal soundtrack down the hallway. 
from the perspective of an educational technology professional, I thought I had a hesitation about this. But the more I thought about what they were doing and the more I thought about what was happening, I understood that it's about the small moments. It's about the face-to-face -face interaction. It's about the times when it's easy to flip your phone out and quickly scroll through 10 or 20 different posts and see what's going on with your friends or snaps or in the world. And they're saying, you know what, use those brief, small moments to reach out and to connect with the person next to you, to ask them how their day was, to give them an update. As a district, we are providing them with the technology that the students actually don't need their cell phones, that these teachers are equipped enough, even though they're not a one-to-one -one campus, they are still able, through blended learning and different innovative techniques, to have their kids interact with technology, provide a deeper learning experience, and in turn, create more complete students because they are then building up those soft skills in them, encouraging them to be changed. And it's going to be a growing pain. It's going to be something that's going to be difficult. Students will lose their phones to the office. Parents will have to come and claim the phones. Phones could be banished from the campus for individuals. But sometimes you have to pull a muscle as you get stronger in order to be ready for the greater battle. The thing is, is that the phone is not a necessity, but our culture states that it is. And the funny part is, is that it's easy, as I've talked about before, to fall into that muscle memory of a phone's a phone. We always have to have it. When the reality is, is we don't. There's the full ability at this school to communicate with mom and dad when they need it. Doesn't need to be a text message. We have people that can do that job. And so it's just very interesting, the investment into the small moments. My hope is with this first week that's starting school that the small moments become blaring, that they, the small moments, the conversations, the kids who need to, to talk to someone, the teachers who are feeling overwhelmed, that those voices can turn and say, hey, it's going to be okay, rather than just blankly walking by, closed off from the world, focused on a device. And like my son, who was locked in the bathroom, not locked in the bathroom, but who was kept in the bathroom for the few days to help him to feel better and so that we didn't mess up the carpet. My hope is, is that as I discovered little moments that you do too, and that that experience does bring some change and some excitement to what your world is. So thank you for joining me on my walk tonight. As always, you can connect on Twitter at Taylor H. Williams. No children were harmed in the making of this story. He was completely fine and we were with him the entire time. I hope you have a wonderful night, happy first day of school, and all the best. This has been That Guy Walking Podcasts.